I think the first thing you have to realize as any kind of person who's faced with adversity is that you are not an all-powerful being and you can't control everything. I I learned that a long time ago and nothing has taught me that more than having a child uh, that you cannot control anything. And so once you kind of let go of that notion that you are able to control anything, everything becomes a little bit easier. And then you kind of just go into your toolkit of like, well, I might not know what's going on, but I know how to fix ABC. And so I'm going to tackle that. I'm going to see what I see, what I see in front of me, fix what I can, and then try to figure out the rest that I can't. And you just kind of have to trust yourself that you have been given the knowledge, the understanding and your past experiences. You've been given all of this together to culminate, to kind of help you tackle future, future situations. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Katie Rebelo. Katie is a board-certified emergency doctor with a fellowship in pediatric emergency medicine. She's an assistant professor of emergency medicine at LAC USC, where I am lucky enough to get to work with her. Now, as Katie puts it, she lives, loves, and breathes wellness and has worked extensively with LAC USC, as well as with the team at Academic Life and Emergency Medicine and the Council of Residency Directors to deepen and explore wellness as it pertains to emergency medicine. Now, it's not always a compliment to say that something is infectious in the emergency department, but Katie brings with her an absolutely infectious sense of joy and purpose, which unquestionably raises the level of performance of myself and everyone else who's lucky enough to work with her. So I'm really happy to have her on the podcast. Before we jump into the episode, I am thrilled to be able to share that the Emergency Mind book is out there in the universe and available. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. Now, like the podcast, the Emergency Mind book explores mental models from emergency medicine and beyond, and its goal is really to develop a framework and vocabulary about human performance under pressure, one that we can really use to build on and improvise around to keep developing the tools and the training it's going to take for individuals and teams to perform at their best when it matters the most. I'm incredibly excited to share it with you, and I really hope you enjoy. Again, you can find that at emergencymind.com book. Okay, all that said, let's jump into this awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, well, Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's just it's awesome to talk to you uh, outside of our normal work environments. I know this is an, an area over which we both sort of share a lot of thought and and conscious effort, and I'm I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. Um, so I'm hoping we can start out sort of going back in time a little bit. Uh, one of the things we've we've sort of found from doing a bunch of these conversations is that the arc between how people start and where they are now in terms of performance under pressure is such an interesting component of it. So what was what was young you like? Like if you send yourself back in time, like what was what were some of the first times that you interacted with really stressful situations and, and what was it like doing that? Oh man, I have had a lot of micro trauma in my life. Um, I've I feel like I have dealt with a lot of I don't know drama, but I think everybody comes from drama, um, which is interesting because I remember the very specific moment that I decided that wellness needed to be a priority in medicine. And when I was a kid, I had two specific people in my life who uh, attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. One of those people was successful and the other was not, thankfully. Um, 
And through that, when I was an intern in New York City, working in Brooklyn, there were two other interns in the city who were in different fields. They weren't in emergency medicine, but they were interns nonetheless, and they had committed suicide. And nobody in my program was talking about it. And this was like in September, like, welcome to resident life. Now you've had two of your colleagues commit suicide. And I was really struck by the lack of transparency and discussion that was not happening um, at the resident level, at the institutional level, at a societal level of why are so many doctors killing themselves, especially young trainees. I mean, you've just dedicated yourself four years of your life to medicine, and now you've finally gotten into the field that you want to work in and something has gone wrong and, and some communication has broken down to make you take this drastic step. And it really, really bothered me. Luckily, I had a medical education fellow who I had become really close with in just the few first months of my uh, resident training. And we kind of connected on this and we were like, we really should do something about this. And so from there, with my resident office, my residency office support, I started a wellness committee kind of just to talk about difficult issues. I will say that in the beginning, wellness was not really a thing. This was Mm -hmm. back in 2017. people had maybe started like murmuring and whispering about, you know, what is wellness? Why are doctors so unhappy? But it wasn't the big thing that it is today. And we started this committee and truth be told, the first year was like a lot of social activities, like let's go do yoga. We didn't have yoga with goats back then, but it was just regular yoga. (laughs) But, you know, let's go do yoga or let's go running or let's go out to eat or let's go have a happy hour. Just kind of let's engage outside the hospital in a non-clinical environment and connect with each other on like a human level. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well. And then I got into my recess year and I just felt kind of overwhelmed by patient pathology. And I felt like I wasn't, I didn't have like enough tools in my toolbox to deal with the stress in front of me. Like I felt like my medical knowledge was sufficient and I could understand like how to treat CHF, but I didn't know how to, how to deal with the look of air hunger that somebody has when they're staring you in the face and they can't breathe and you're throwing them on BiPAP and they can't even talk to you. How do you deal with that? Nobody taught me how to deal with that. And it was very overwhelming. And I'm a very emotional person. I'm a Pisces. And because of that, I felt like so many times in the beginning of my recess year, I was overwhelmed by emotion so much so that I couldn't think clearly about like the pathophysiology of medicine and how to treat patients. And it was almost crippling. And that was kind of the turning point in my journey with wellness to where I was like, I need more than yoga without goats. And happy hours to really build up my own wellness and create resiliency in myself. If I want to do this forever, because I take on way too much emotion from patients and I can't let that affect my ability to take care of them. Wow. That, what a powerful way to say that about the link between sort of what you're feeling and seeing and and reflecting from your patient's emotional state and your ability to actually provide care like that. And I mean, can, can we push on that a little bit? Like when you, when you were in the moment treating that patient, were you aware of how your mind and body were sort of working around that? Or was this more like, I don't know, I feel like I'm sort of flailing a little bit. And then I go home and I think about it and I see, geez, I, I really had a hard time with their, with their air hunger. What do I do about that tomorrow? 
it was almost, it had to be, it had to happen multiple times. Mm -hmm. So it was almost like in the moment, you know how like in movies when like two people meet and like they all all of a sudden fall in love and then like everything around them swirls into nothingness. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like that. I had so many moments where I had this like deep connection with somebody's gaze and everything swirled around me and I couldn't focus on anything else except for Mm -hmm. this person's emotional feeling about what was happening to them in this moment. And you know, it's the worst day of their life. Like people don't come to the ER most of the time because they just want to hang out with you. They come because it's literally the worst day of their life and they're looking to you to help them. And I always had to be like pulled from that swirling moment Mm -hmm. by an attending who was like, Katie, what do you want to do? And I was like, okay. And then I could treat it, but it was like, I had to be yanked from that I don't know, ethereal, metaphysical swirling to realize that I like had to do something and get a hold of my emotions to really be able to like treat patients. And it's so interesting that you're describing it that way because that that feeling of um it's not it's not freezing because it's not fear, which is also something that people feel at the beginning when they're doing resuscitations, right? That moment of I don't know how to do this. But you're describing something that is that is different and off of that and also equally powerful of a, I'm going to call it a gravitational pull almost, which is that you, you feel sort of sucked into their life and their moment in there, but it happens functionally at the same time. You're describing it at the beginning of the case. Did you, did you feel like you would get pulled by that at multiple times during it? Or once you got out of that first piece where you, you know, smooth sailing sort of the Yeah, I think so. I think so. Once I like kind of broke that connection and realized that I had to focus on like the pathology of the patient and stabilize that. Mm -hmm. And then I could focus on the emotional component of the clinical care that I was trying to provide. um, Then I felt like it was fine, but this happened to me many times before I realized I need more tools to figure out how to deal with these emotions because this is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. What was that like, that that moment of realization where, um, and feel free to also put it in terms of movie scenes if you feel like, but that, <laughs> mo- that moment of being like, wow, this is a thing and I, and I need to actually study this thing and I need tools for this thing. Because I, you know, I imagine, and I felt this way similarly in, in other parts of my own arc developing as a, as a, you know, emergency provider and emergency human. I like that emergency human. I'm going to keep that for later, <laughs> but uh, you know, that, that moment when you, you sort of lift your head up and you go, geez, I, I really, I don't have a good mental model for how this works. I need to start looking around for it. But what, what was that like? What were those first couple moments of realization like? Um, scary and exciting at the same time, because I've always been a person who likes to be prepared. Um, I was that annoying person in med school who asked a million questions and then went home and studied all my notes and then came back the next day and asked more questions because I always felt, despite the fact that I was never a Girl Scout, I always felt that being prepared was like the best way to face any situation. So I felt like if I had a toolbox full of coping skills and strategies and interventions that I could handle any situation. And so that was what kind of scared me is that I did not have those tools, but it was exciting because I knew that I had been able to do that in the past and fill my toolbox. And so I kind of went on a mission to be like, I'm going to not only make tools for myself, but I'm going to enable all of my co-residents to not ever have this feeling. Amazing. What did that look like? Where did you look? What did you study? What, what sort of caught your eye from that? Did you have any mentors that, that really stood out to you in that? Yes. I had a lovely mentor. Her name is Arlene. Um, She's currently a PD in New York. 
she's fabulous, but she was actually kind of also just starting to get her feet wet in the wellness realm. Because like I said, it wasn't really a big thing back then. And, you know, I was just talking to her one day and I was like, you know what, I think I need to kind of go away from the fluffiness of wellness and go more towards the formalized nature of wellness. Like what does wellness mean? And like, what are the realms of wellness and what are different components of wellness and how can I educate residents, faculty members, staff members on those different components and give them strategies to tackle those different areas. And at the end of the day, I really was just trying to decrease burnout because I had been doing a lot of research on why physicians committed suicide. And, you know, physicians have like a the, the rate of suicide for physicians is like double the normal society. Um, we almost lose an entire med school every year for, from physician for suicide. So my main goal was to prevent that because I had already experienced that in my life. I was like, I went into medicine to help people not to experience more suicide within my own field. And so my main goal was to decrease burnout and create resilient physicians who really would be able to have a prolonged, fulfilled life within medicine. That's such a, wow. That's, that's so powerful to sit with that idea that, that we lose the equivalent of a entire medical school to suicide on a regular basis. It's staggering because you know what, it's something that we don't, we didn't used to talk about. And you know, the, the culture of medicine is so, you know, how do I say this? Like, you're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to know everything. You're not supposed to be emotional with your patients. And I really feel like that we're having a cultural shift within the entire medical field in that realm, which I think is good. You know, I think we need to sit with our patients and be uncomfortable with our patients and really feel their feelings to be the best physicians that we can be. But it certainly wasn't like that 50 years ago. And it still kind of wasn't really like that when I was in residency. And I think I don't know, kind of paying attention to the different realms of wellness and trying to educate and intervene to decrease burnout is really helping shift that culture. So, so let's maybe jump into that. So what do you see as the, uh, realms of wellness? Like what is wellness? What is wellness? What an excellent question you asked, Dan. <laughs> so I will say wellness means something different to everyone, but the basic idea is that it's this lifelong process of becoming aware of, taking responsibility for, and making changes to things that affect your well-being. It's a constant dynamic process. It happens all the time, every day, all day. You are not the same person you were yesterday because you had experiences that changed your dynamic self. And wellness basically focuses on eight, I guess you would call it realms, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, social, environmental. Of course, I'm forgetting the last one. <laughs> um, but there, the whole idea is that you want to balance these realms of wellness and you want to pay attention to things that are negatively affecting those areas of your life to be able to achieve your maximum potential in life. So for example, if I'm an amazing physician um, and an amazing mom, but my finances suck, then that's going to negatively affect my well-being. And I'm going to keep thinking about, well, maybe I should work more and spend less with my spend less time with my kid. Well, then that's going to affect that realm. So it's really about striking this balance between 
all the areas of your life to where you feel um, kind of balanced. And as I recall, there's a, there's a visual model for this, which is like these interconnected ring sort of things, right? Yes. Okay. And first off, just as sort of a sidebar for folks listening to this, like this is not something that you're taught really in medical school, or at least that I wasn't. And it's barely something we covered in residency in any sort of shape or form, right? There'd be a little bit of like, oh yeah, you know, like you have to have enough money to pay your rent. Like, great. That's our finance talk. Yes. Uh, and then now you're sort of talking a little bit more about about emotional well-being and sort of recovery from stress, but but not done in sort of a systematic way. And I, I think that something to sort of reinterpret what you said earlier, like wellness is is a hard skill. It's not it's not it's sometimes relegated as like this soft skill, like oh you know you're just going to sort of learn how to be well and sort of go about your business. But but not hard as in difficult, but hard as in like one of the crucially important sort of like technical things that we do. Um, and one of the last guests that we had on uh, is um, Eric Antonsen, who talks a lot about the idea uh, when he works with NASA about like the human system as an operating system, right? Just like the propulsion system is a system and the life support system is a system, but the human system is its own thing that that requires maintenance and care and and um sort of training and stress. And it strikes me that that's very similar to what you're saying with this. Am I reading oh, that It's right? exactly similar. It's like, imagine yourself as like being, having structural integrity. So it's almost like if you're a plane, if all your components aren't working, you are going to crash. So you really need to find a fine balance between all of your systems to be able to have the structural integrity to take off and stay in the air and keep everyone around you safe. Hmm. So how do you, how do you test that? Right? Like pilots and planes, which I know very little have like, you know, a bunch of instruments and the, there's some lights that turn on green and red. I have no idea what they measure, but somehow they measure the structural integrity or the the function of the plane or the engine or something like what's, what's you and I, what's our equivalent of that? Yeah. So this is a really fascinating burgeoning area of research that is ongoing right now that I'm um, participating in, in a few different ways, but there are a few measurement tools that we have that can measure burnout, the Maslach burnout inventory, which is a very well externally validated tool to measure three different components of burnout. Um, We have the Jefferson empathy scale, which can measure how empathetic you are with patients which should in turn increase your well-being and contribute to wellness. And then we have the Connor Davidson resilience scale, which measures resilience. Um, and those are really the only well externally validated tools that we have to kind of measure these ambiguous areas of wellness. So there is kind of a paucity of literature out there supporting how we study this, which is why wellness is such a, an ambiguous thing. Um, but I do think that there are very defined areas within wellness that affect us as physicians that we can educate on and give tools to physicians for to kind of combat those different areas. So if I can expand, um, for example, like compassion fatigue, I didn't really know what compassion fatigue was until I experienced it. And that was kind of sad because I was like a second year and I was like, how did I get all the way through med school? And one and a half years of residency and not even realize what compassion fatigue was when I'm supposed to be in a compassionate, empathetic field. And when I experienced it, I was like, okay, I need everybody to know about this. I want to teach the world and like give people tools to not ever experience this again. And so it's, it's things like that, that I kind of experienced and was like, I need to turn, 
give residents tools to kind of deal with this? So there's this <clears throat> there's this ethos underneath that of never wasting the suffering that you or your patients go through, which is something that we we talk about a lot on the podcast um, and in the book as well. You know, this idea that like you're exposed to the suffering and you have to leverage it in order to keep yourself sane and to keep building for the next patient that comes in. Um, so so let's press on that a little bit. So let's say so I'm I'm an ER doctor who's interested in in wellness and sort of thinking my way through this system a little bit. And you're naming some of these tools. What, when do I use them? When do I use them myself? Do I use them at the end of a shift? Do I, am I, do I fill out forms and sort of like reflect on my score over time? Like, like functionally, how do I use these tools to sort of look at the structural integrity of my hull and the strength of my engine or whatever the right metaphor is for that? Sure. Well, I think, I think one of the major tools is arming yourself with knowledge because you're not always gonna have the experience, right? To create a more resilient physician, you need to give them the education and knowledge before they experience it so that when they encounter it, they know how to deal with it. Mm. Um, so I think educating and just teaching residents about these different areas within wellness is very helpful. And then you can give them tools to kind of tackle it. So for example, one of the things that I started doing when I was a PGY2 that I continue to do today is mindfulness. And I find that it's such an easy, quick thing that you can do on shift when you're faced with adversity or a stressful situation and nobody has to know that you're doing it and you kind of center yourself. And then all of a sudden you are basically one with yourself again, and you are ready to tackle whatever's in front of you. And press on that for me. What do you do? So you and I had a truly difficult case together not too long ago, and we can sort of dance around that or go into it, whatever you'd like. But, but I know that I personally did some mindfulness exercises when I was in that room waiting for that patient to show up. I don't know if you did or not, but, but if so, can you share like, what was that? What do you, what do you physically do? Yeah. So I'll give you a little background um, because that was a particularly uh, stressful situation for me. It's one of my triggers. I feel like we all have bad cases and bad triggers that when they come in again, you kind of like freeze. And I, in that moment, I really have to be mindful. And I almost do like a mini meditative session with myself to really center myself into the room to be able to like fully take care of that patient. Um, so essentially I had a really horrible case of bacterial meningitis when I was in fellowship. Um, it was a four-year-old who had come in with a headache a few days earlier and had represented with fever. And within four hours, this child was intubated. He had a central line. He dropped his pressures. We started him on vasopressors and then he developed DIC. And within four hours, he was coding. And I cannot even explain to you the gravity of a mother's scream when her child dies in front of you. It's, it's just awful. And it's something that will stay with me forever. And I felt like I had processed that stressor after that case, but I had not processed the stress of the situation. I had not like completed my stress cycle. And two weeks later, I went to Mexico with my partner and we went scuba diving and I'm an advanced scuba diver. I enjoy scuba diving. I love being in the water. Uh, I've never been afraid of it. I probably had at least a hundred dives under my belt. And I essentially underwater, very deep, had my first panic attack ever 
because I felt like I saw this kid under the water and I recognized it because I see panic attacks all the time in the ER, right? But I had never experienced it myself. And I essentially started hyperventilating, which is really hard to do with a respirator and became like numb. I couldn't swim. I became very cold. And then I just became delirious and I started taking off all of my equipment. And my partner literally saved my life. He, I was trying to take off my BCD. I threw out my respirator and he shoved it back in and threw me up 50 feet. And luckily I didn't have any injuries. Um, I threw up when I surfaced, but I didn't like pop a pneumo or have any, you know, prolonged sequelae. But at that moment, that's when I realized I really need to process this stress because this is affecting my life. And because of that experience, drowning will always be a trigger for me because I had this horrible pediatric case. And then I experienced this. So every time that I see a drowning case, it really affects me. Um, and so for that, you know, I kind of learned how to complete the stress cycle, which we can get into, but because of that, I really started diving in, into mindfulness again. And because that's a trigger for me, every time I have a case like that, Luckily, we get a little bit of warning, at least five minutes, and I just sit with myself quietly and I take deep breaths and I really focus on the moment, on being present in the moment. And I'm non-judgmental with myself. I'm like pace, patient and trusting of myself. And I try to be gratuitous with myself. And then I feel like my mind is clear and I can attack the situation in front of me. Katie, thank you for sharing that. That's that's so powerful, and and I can't imagine what that moment or moments felt like. I think a lot of us carry some version of that story as we go through our our arc as emergency people. We carry some version of that, whatever that thing is for us, and and the sort of bravery and intention about proactively stepping forward to try to figure that out for yourself is, is amazing. Thank you. Um, well, I mean, I had to, Yeah, you have to, that's the only way you, you grow is by being vulnerable and putting yourself out there and getting help. Yes. And that's such a sometimes hard thing to do. Because especially when you're in the middle of feeling that and you're feeling that residue of your of your cases and you're trying to figure out how to connect that to folks that aren't that are civilians uh, uh, as opposed to sort of what we are, um, it can be really tempting to just like push as like to push away from you and not think about it and not try to process it and not try to move forward with it. So I, I think you're right that like at some level, you know, what other choice do you have, right? You you uh, you sort of evolve or die. Um, to put it kind of bluntly, but that doesn't make it necessarily easy or friendly or or accessible in a lot of ways. Um, and but it's interesting though, because I feel like part of the human experience is that everybody experiences stress. Like everyone listening to this podcast might not have seen a horrible thing happen in front of them, but they might have been through an ugly divorce. They might have lost a child. They might have lost a pet or lost a job or had some sense of loss or you know, tragedy or struggle in their life. And that's kind of what connects us all to each other is struggle. And so finding that connectedness in common humanity and recognizing and embracing that human suffering exists everywhere 
makes you feel like you're not alone. And that rejection of isolation is part of the reason that we stay together and that we survive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also part of the deep joy of our job is to try to step into places where there is suffering and to connect human to human with other people in the middle of it and try to make it better. I mean, that's that's at an incredibly fundamental level what medicine is and what emergency medicine is, is to, to stand there in the middle of the storm of suffering and to try to make it slightly better around you. Um, yeah. I completely agree with you. That's like That's like humanity back to like, you know, sitting around a fire in the dark kind of level of humanity. <laughs> Yes. Absolutely. So maybe this is a good time actually to bridge back to something that you said a little bit earlier on, which is that you sort of envisioned yourself as this mental model of somebody who has like this toolkit full of all these tools and they're tools that you prepared for a certain situation you sort of practiced on and you worked on. And I, I'm really interested in how your understanding of those tools function when you're put up against these incredibly hard, stressful life and death kind of situations, because some things we can prepare for pretty well ahead of time, right? We understand like, okay, if we need to um, perform uh, an IV placement for a child, or we need to perform a, you know, splint for an adult. Okay, cool. That's a skill we can practice. And generally we understand the scope of the problem and when we're going to have to apply that skill. But one of the things that makes the folks listening to this podcast such an interesting group of humans is that we perform in these situations where we don't always know what's happening and we can't always know what's happening and where we can't always succeed, right? That we come up against failure and suffering and loss and, and often death or catastrophic failure of one, one type or another. So how do you see those tools interfacing with this sort of immovable object on the other side? And, and how have you sort of prepared for that kind of thing? So that's a really interesting question uh, that I have. I don't know if I've ever really thought about this, but I think at the very core of it, I think the first thing you have to realize as any kind of person who's faced with adversity is that you are not an all-powerful being and you can't control everything. I I learned that a long time ago and nothing has taught me that more than having a child uh, that you cannot control anything. And so once you kind of let go of that notion that you are able to control anything, everything becomes a little bit easier. And then you kind of just go into your toolkit of like, well, I might not know what's going on, but I know how to fix ABC. And so I'm going to tackle that. I'm going to see what I see, what I see in front of me, fix what I can and then try to figure out the rest that I can't. And you just kind of have to trust yourself that you have been given the knowledge, the understanding and your past experiences. You've been given all of this together to culminate, to kind of help you tackle future future situations. You know, I'm struck because I hear that by um, a gentleman that was on the podcast pretty early on, maybe episode 10 or something, Brett Whitman, who's a... Uh, a free diver and a big wave surfer and was talking about sort of like what it was like to start planning to surf these really big waves where you might be underwater for sort of several minutes at a time if you if you miss the surface of the wave and he said something similar which is essentially like i can't control the wave and i can't control exactly what happens when i interface with the power of this of this piece of nature in the world around me but i know on average that people can be pinned under for let's call it 2 minutes so what I'm going to do is train my breath holding to make it to three minutes. I'm going to overtrain everything I can and then let go of everything I can't control. Um, 
And I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of strength and flexibility in sort of that approach to this kind of idea. Yeah, that's very interesting. I also think that part of preparedness is the notion that you don't want to fail. And I have some issues with that, mostly because I feel like everybody fails and you should fail, right? Like I want to fail in life because if I don't fail, I don't grow. And I couldn't be this, you know, ravishing doctor in front of you who tries to do the best job she can. Um, But I really think there's this notion of like failing up is so Mm -hmm. interesting because it's not about the failure. It's not about the mistakes that you make in any area of your life. It's what you do with that mistake and how you grow from it. So, you know, like from, from this gentleman's like preparedness for being underwater for two minutes, I think that's a great idea. Hopefully nothing bad happens, but if for some reason he, during his training, he had to come up after a minute and a half and wasn't able to do the two minutes. He shouldn't see that as a failure. He should see that as a challenge to do better in the future and room for growth. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're entirely right. And, and I think that exposing ourselves to realms where we fail repeatedly and push ourselves and sort of sit with that, um, is incredibly important because like you said, we don't control everything. And that's, it's incredibly true in the middle of a resuscitation or a trauma or anything else. There's so much that we don't control. And specifically, we don't control necessarily the outcome of what happens, right? We Sometimes the die is just cast and all you're doing is the best you can for this person. And if you link your sense of self to a thing that is outside of you that you cannot control, you're essentially outsourcing your sense of self to something that, that, has no relationship to you whatsoever. And that is an inherently fragile state of being that isn't going to be resilient. It isn't going to last and it's going to crumble over time. Um, It's also a pretty natural thing to do, especially as you're starting, if you don't have alternative models that support for you this idea of like, well, what is a successful human? What does that look like to be strong and flexible and resilient and to, to not think like that? And what are role models that help you do that? And I think that's a really important piece of it. You know, for those of us that are, that are slightly farther along and sort of doing our doing teaching as well, which is how do we model this? How do we model this for the people around us to create these alternate pathways so that the next generation of people coming up and the one after that are sitting here having a much more informed better conversation than you and I are capable of having based on our, our sort of limited, our limited scope. Although I agree with you quite handsome and ravishing. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think it's a lot about just being the example you want to like be the change you want to be in the world, right? You want to lead by example. So for me, you know, if I want my residents to keep their cool and not lose their patience, then I certainly cannot do that on a shift. Um, If I want my residents to be empathetic and compassionate and really sit with the patient and listen to them or, you know, take their social situation into account, then I also have to do that. And it's not about, you know, just, you know, spewing all this advice at residents. It's really just about showing them through, through example. Um, And that's what my mentors and my attendings did when I was a resident. And that's just what I'm trying to do for my residents. And I want to ask a slightly different version of that question, because this is something I've been trying to think about a lot lately is um, sort of lateral support structures, not just, uh, um, you know, looking for mentors or 
teaching folks uh, who are coming up with you as well, but sort of lateral support structures. So last night, um, we worked a shift that sort of overlapped, right? So I took sign out from you and uh, you were leaving and I was starting and we had a as per usual, like an awesome time talking for a few minutes about how life is <laughs> as, we, as we switched. But I wonder about that moment. Like that moment strikes me as, you know, uh, two peers who are sort of handing over the watch in one form or another. Like what can we do in that moment to build in some of these concepts of wellness and support for each other? Like are there, are there ways that I could ask you questions as you're leaving about, hey, what are you going to do to successfully get home? Or questions that you can ask me about, hey, what are you going to do to start a shift that like lets you act in a way that accords with your deepest values? And I, I don't really have a good model for how to do that. It's That's a really interesting question. I have not thought about that in a peer-to-peer -peer way as an attending. And I am currently working on um, cultivating some faculty wellness development. But I do challenge my residents every shift with two goals. One, I want you to have a clinical goal. Like I want to work on my efficiency. I want to work on my note writing. I want to see this type of patient um, and then have a wellness goal. I want to make sure that I remember to go to the bathroom. I want to make sure that I step outside and get five minutes of fresh air. I want to make sure that I eat. I want to make sure that I drink water. Um, and I think it's important because residents sometimes don't think about that. And it could be six hours into a shift. And did you eat today? Oh no, I just, I'm really busy. I just am so behind. Okay. Well, I think you would be a better physician. If you took care of yourself, put your own oxygen mask on before you assist others, go have something to eat, have some water, take a break. And then you can come back refreshed with kind of a clean slate. And you might see things differently. You might see things that you might've missed because you were hypoglycemic or you had a full bladder. Um, and a lot of residents have kind of resonated with me that that's like such a interesting thing that I do. I don't think a lot of other people do that, but it's important to remember that you're not just there as a clinician, you're there as a human. And if you really want to connect with your patients as a human, you need to take care of your humanism. I have this note card on my desk here that I uh, think about quite a bit and that I try to bring into work, which is that I am not replaceable by a Dan shaped robot. <laughs> and, and that sounds funny, but it, it's, man, that is an incredibly hard fought thought to get to that point. Because I think for a lot of time, I kind of thought like, yeah, I could, if you replace me with a Dan shaped robot, people might be better. Right. Like, oh yeah. People well, I definitely don't think that. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. But, but I think that it's hard, it's hard to sort of arrive at that thought and on, on shift. Sometimes it's tempting to be like, man, if only I could like robot my way through this a little bit and sort of like, just like pretend I don't have these things and sort of drive forward. There's this feeling, or there was this feeling for a long time that, yeah, that would, that would be a better version. And now as I've gotten older and I hope better at my job and more in tune with sort of, um, I guess the reality of life and existence. I don't think that at all. I think that I I would outperform a robot Dan on any day of the week, and that 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 version of me that has the requirements of supporting a human system, but also brings the empathy and the connection and my own history of suffering and my ability to connect human to human, is a better version of an emergency doctor and certainly a better version of a human than a robot version of me would be. But yeah, and do you know why that is? It's because you have eyes. It's one of the reasons because you can like deeply gaze into a patient and really like connect with them. Have you ever like done one of those seminars? Brene Brown is a huge fan of this, by the way, about just like gazing into a stranger's eyes for 10 seconds. It is incredibly uncomfortable. 
Do you know why? Because you're creating a super deep connection with that person. And a lot of people are uncomfortable and they're, they're unable to sit with it, especially if you like don't know anything about them. Um, but that's like what we do on a daily basis with multiple patients every day is we gaze at them and they tell us their life story and they trust us. And that's where the human connection comes from. And that's why you could never be replaced by a robot because they're not going to be able to do that. And they're not going to be able to experience, to share that commonness of humanity with a patient. Hmm. I love that. I love that. I also think next time we sign out to each other, we're going to do that. Let's do a 10 minute. <laughs> just not talk, not explain any of the context to any of the Gaze other doctors challenge. working with us and just go for it in the middle of it. I it's like a it. staring contest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, yeah. I, I just, this idea fascinates me so much of like, how can we, how can we ask for and share support at a peer-to-peer level across what we're doing? Because in a lot of places where you, you work in places where I've worked, you don't have residents, you don't have people around you. You don't have mentors necessarily. You're sort of coming in and you have your team of um, uh, nurses and APPs and, and techs and EMTs and everybody. And that's your family for that moment. And I think that asking for and receiving support laterally like that is such a, such a huge skill. Um, and it implies like, like, or I guess implicit in that is this idea that you are an imperfect evolving human and that there is strength and grace and, uh, purpose in that. And that owning that imperfection, that wabi-sabi nature of yourself, the, the human Dan, not robot Dan kind of version, uh, is such a source of strength and ability and, um, and also in some ways, like a radically vulnerable act to say that out loud as the leader of a team. You're essentially identifying one of the main strategies to foster and develop resiliency, which is creating community, right? Among your peers, among your staff, your nurses, um, your environmental service workers, developing that community and knowing that you're going through a common struggle together, uh, especially during COVID, We all are going through a common struggle in the world, but especially as a healthcare worker, one of it's like one of the main tenets of developing resiliency is creating community and collaborating and having common perceptions about what you're doing. One of the other tenets of creating resiliency is having a common goal and a meaning and purpose that's bigger than yourself. So like, obviously we work in the service industry, but identifying that you, your goal in life is to improve someone else's life in a moment of dire need, gives you bigger purpose and enhances your well being astronomically. And so, just by developing those two things, by having a higher meaning of meaning of purpose and and value, and sharing that with the community, makes you already more resilient than if you didn't have those two things. How granular are you about that when you go about your shift? Are you, are you saying to yourself like, okay, I'm going to develop, like, this is how I'm going to build community today. This is how I'm going to like touch my purpose today. Or is this something as you're reflecting back at the end of a week that you sort of look back on how you're doing? I think it depends. I'm one of those people that I'm like inherently happy and I blame my dad. He is (laughs) just like a very, very happy, optimistic person. It's just who I am. However, that does not mean that I don't have bad days. And so there are definitely days where I get out of bed and I'm like, wow, I don't know why, but I'm just feeling kind of crummy today. And um, I have to change that before I get to work. And so I spend my, you know, 45 minutes to an hour commute 
to work, prepping myself and getting into this mindset of, I don't know why I'm in a bad mood today, but I'm going in to serve a higher purpose and I need to clear my head and focus on that goal so that I can really provide excellent care. And I'm going into a community that I love. I love the people I work with. I love the faculty members. I love the residents. I love the nurses. I love the patients. They're so thankful. And so sometimes I am in a bad mood and then I prep myself and then I walk into the hospital. I'm like, wow, I'm jazzed to be here today. And I'm just going to like have the best time. And by the time I leave my shift, I'm in such a better mood. And so I kind of cultivated those some of these like strategies during residency. And it has really served me well throughout this entire pandemic when there were days I did not want to go to work. Like I was just so beaten down by death and destruction and tragedy that I couldn't do it. And COVID has been hard, I think, especially for healthcare workers, because we're inundated it with it everywhere. You turn on the news, it's there. You talk to your spouse, it's there. You see it in the community and then you go to work and you deal with it. And so I really had to do that a lot over the last year, but it really, really worked and it really helped me. And I feel like our community is stronger than ever. I feel like our entire staff has just kind of formed together to create this almost like one of those like arm bonds you did as a kid, like don't break the bond. I feel like that's how we are. And it's made us just like much stronger and in turn, better doctors to our patients. Absolutely agree. It's such an honor to get to work at a place that has that deep sense of community that's literally, you know, has a mission that's literally carved in stone above one of the doors, right? About the sense of service and purpose and 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 to be there as a resource for for our fellow humans. And there is deep gravity and beauty in that that pulls me also out of tough days and out of everything else to show up and be part of that team. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and along with that, I feel very lucky to get to work with you on this kind of stuff too. So, so thank you. Um, uh, same. Definitely. Definitely. And, and maybe that's a good time to sort of like slightly wrap this up a little bit, sadly, um, because this has been awesome. Uh, but we always end by offering um, the guest on the show a chance to, to, to sort of fire a shot across the bow and, and send a, a challenge out to everybody listening to this. So what's your, what's your challenge? Folks listening to this, what do you want them to do differently today or this week? So I think something that I've really been working on recently that I think has really helped increase my resilience and kind of decrease my burnout in this very difficult time in our history is to just really practice um, self-compassion, which is a component of mindfulness, uh, self-kindness and connectedness. So making sure you're connected to your community, whether that is your family or your work environment or your greater community of your neighbors, just making sure that you're connecting with other humans and sharing with their experiences and really sitting with them and their emotions. Um, I think that helps you grow. And then just being really kind to yourself and recognizing that like failure and imperfection is inevitable. And it's not about experiencing them. It's about how you react and process them and making yourself vulnerable and open to change. And I think if we all kind of practice self-compassion, we can really live wholeheartedly and just make the world a better place. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What an awesome way to end. Katie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was really lovely. <laughs> 
Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.